0: Thank you, Sabrina. Hey, it's good to be with y'all. And happy Lord's Day today. Um, uh, I'm going to invite you here to grab your Bible. And uh, if you know how to find it, uh, turn to John chapter 19. Uh, If you're joining us, if if this is your first time uh, at this church or coming to church in a while, first of all, thank you uh, for the courage and coming to join us for worship Uh, You're joining us in the middle of a series on the Gospel of John, and we've been leading up to these last moments of Jesus' life. And today we're going to discuss uh, the very heavy topic of Jesus' death on the cross, and what it means for us as we celebrate uh, his death, and then in a few weeks as we celebrate his resurrection. So uh, we're going to read about his crucifixion and his burial, and as I said, it's heavy uh, I'm not intentionally trying to make this message unnecessarily heavy, but the reality is uh, what we're going to read and talk about today is that an innocent man was executed. And because of that, it is, it is a heavy topic. So whether you've been coming a while, whether this is your first time, whether you came to faith decades ago or more recently, or maybe you're here uh, dipping your toe in the water, checking things out, uh, maybe it's been a while since you came to church Regardless of how you're coming in this morning, I invite you uh, to lean in and to listen. Uh, This might be a familiar story. You might actually know all the details before I read this passage. But even if it's familiar, even if there's no new information, I want to encourage you to lean in because I think especially for those of us who have been following Jesus for a little while, uh, these things can wear off. The emotion of it, the impact of it can wear down. And for those of us who've been following Jesus for a while, uh, we can fall into this trap that when we read the Bible, we need new information. We need to hear new things. Tickle my ears with new things. We need new info. And oftentimes, I don't think what we actually need most is new information. What I think we need is to actually sit in and maybe apply the information we already have. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, We're going to read this story that might be familiar and we're going to look at what are the repercussions of Jesus on the cross? What are the implications of the cross? What are we really celebrating as we look at his death? So if you're a note taker, I'll try and give you clear notes. We're going to look at three things that Jesus took from us on the cross. We're going to look at three things he took from us. And then at the very end, we'll zoom out and we'll, we'll, we'll consider why. Why did he take these things? So three things he took and why. Um, I don't know if you've had something taken from you. I lived in Philadelphia for 12 years. I had a few things taken from me. (laughs) Um, But Jesus takes these things from us when he dies, and it's important that he does. So with that in mind, let's turn to our text, uh, John chapter 19. Uh, It's in your worship folder as well. Uh, We're picking it up. Uh, At this point in the story, Jesus has been beaten very badly. He's been run through a mock trial, and he's been handed over. So brothers and sisters, uh, hear these words from the book that we love. It's a long passage here. I'll just intersperse just a couple comments as we go through. Starting in verse 16. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. We'll pause there, right? The place is called the skull. That's the the setting of our story. Uh, The skull doesn't sound like a lovely place. Right? It doesn't sound like a place you'd want to hang out after dark, unless maybe you're a pirate. Right? <laughs> it's a bad place. Uh, it's named the skull because this is the place outside of the city limits where all the executions happened. This is the place of death. This is where people are killed for their, for their crimes. They're in the place of the skull. And then in verse 18, there they crucified him. They put him on a T-shaped piece of wood and put nails in his hands and his feet. They crucified him and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather write, This man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers who had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which is in Psalm 22, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and saw the disciple whom he loved, that's our author, that's John, Jesus' friend. John uh, is very humble throughout this book. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. When he saw his mother, and when he saw John, the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to John, to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture in Psalm 69, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came And broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. This is John saying, I was there. I saw it. I'm telling you the truth. Why is he telling the truth? That you may also believe. For these things took place, the, the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. It's Exodus 12 and Numbers 9. And again, another scripture says that they will look on him whom they have pierced. It's Zechariah 12. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission Since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to Christ. All right, so friends, like I said, this story is the story of the physical death of Jesus. What's going on here, though, beyond the physical? What's going on spiritually behind all of these things? It's uh, super important. It's vital that we understand this. So I mentioned three things. Jesus takes from us on the cross, and then we'll talk about why. But the first thing that Jesus takes from us in his death on the cross, the first thing is our sin and guilt. Jesus takes our sin and guilt. So let's start uh, with sin. What is sin? Sin is any breaking of God's rules, any veering away from the way that he set up the world to work best, any bucking of God's systems, and uh, they're listed in many places in Scripture, all right? Many of you are familiar with the Ten Commandments, the, the ten ways that God tells us uh, what, to, what to do and not do in the Old Testament. Um, let's start with a simple one in that list. Um, don't lie, right? Or in the King James Version, thou shalt not lie, Right? Um, there's a story that's told in my family about, uh, it's about me, but it's really about my brother, Ben. My brother, Ben, is two years younger. And when I was six and my brother was four, my, bre- my grandparents came to visit, and the movie uh, Crocodile Dundee, yes, it's a blast from the past. Um, you're welcome if you've not seen it, go stream it. Um, the movie Crocodile Dundee, had just came out, and my grandparents brought, my brother and I, these big, like, plastic Australian Outback machetes, Okay, they're big fake knives. So uh, my grandparents are there for the afternoon. Um, We're playing sword fights, and at one point, uh, my brother goes missing. It's about dinner time, so my family is like, "Well, where's Ben? Andy's here, his baby sister Beth is here. Where's Ben?" So everybody kind of splits up to go find Ben. Uh, My mom goes out the house and around the corner, and on the side of our house, she had a beautiful garden. And she had planted a whole bunch of tomato plants. And they were tall at this point. They were in those little cone things that keep them from falling over. Uh, They're this tall. They have, like, green tomatoes. They're not ripe yet. And when my mom turned the corner, every single one of those tomato plants had been viciously slain. Right? They were gone. They were on the ground. There was, like, green paste everywhere. Someone had gone to town on the tomato plants. So she comes back inside, and someone else had found my brother Ben. He's in there. And so we're sitting at the table, and uh, the question goes to Ben. Ben, why did you chop down the tomato plants? I, I, didn't, I didn't do that. Well, uh, let me see your sword. Let me see your knife here. Why is it covered in green paste? Well, um, I, I don't know. It's not, it's not the tomatoes, though. It's something else. Okay. Well, who chopped the tomatoes down? Um, it was Andy. Andy did it. Now, Andy was sitting right here with us. His sword is clean. Uh, who did it, Ben? Who chopped the tomatoes down? Um, it, was, it was Beth. Beth the infant, who has not yet learned to use her opposable thumbs, chopped down the tomato plants. Okay? It wasn't Beth. Who was it, Ben? Did you do it? No, it wasn't me. It was the dog. It was Tigger. And then he went on to try and show us teeth marks in his sword where the dog had, the golden retriever had picked up the sword and then went out to the... T- it's, like, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. The crazy thing here is like kids are really bad liars and then they learn to get good at it. Like when you first started lying, you were terrible at it. But then over time, you get good at lying. Think just for a second about how dark that is. It's crazy. We learn by getting busted. And then we say, oh, the next time I lie, I'll do it this way. And we perfect it. So I'm going to give you guys an honest pop quiz. I intend for you to respond. All right? I'd like you to raise your hand if you've ever told a lie. All right? Raise your hand. Keep it up. Keep it up. Have you ever told two lies? Have you ever told three? All right. Now keep your hands raised right? Kids in the service, I want you to look around. Do you see your parents' hands raised? Do you see the other adults' hands raised? Why am I doing this, right? Kids, I want you to know your parents need Jesus just as much as you do, all right? Lying parents, put your hands down. Yeah, mom and dad are just as in need of grace as you are. Us adults are just as in need of God's mercy as you are. We are imperfect, we will let you down, we will fail you, we will snap. We will imperfectly reveal to you the person of God. But we will seek to reveal him nonetheless. So, yes, we've lied. We've sinned. We've done things that we wish we hadn't done. Have you ever said something you wish you hadn't said? Have you ever done something that made you feel bad, either in the moment or afterward, about doing it? This is our rebellion. This is the arrogant indifference we have toward God. And because of this, we are guilty. We are guilty before God. And I will acknowledge that our, our current culture uh, does not like to feel guilt. We do not want to talk about guilt. We think guilt is a problem. And thinking guilt is a problem is the actual problem. See, folks today, our culture today, Resist the idea of guilt because all of our lives, we're told, don't let other people tell you what to do. Right? What is the Disney mantra? Follow your heart. Just follow your heart. You figure out what is good for you and you do that. And don't let anybody else tell you otherwise. You have to decide that and then live that out. And to the extent you feel guilty, you're letting other people tell you what, you know, is true or right. Don't don't let them tell you that. But... Uh, as a culture, we have kind of veered away from feelings of guilt. And I will acknowledge with you that uh, living under an inordinate amount of guilt all the time, like if you just swim in a sea of guilt all the time, that is unhealthy. That's not good. Swimming in that inordinate sea of guilt all the time is unhealthy. But you want to know it's even more unhealthy? It's even scarier? never feeling any guilt ever the feeling of no guilt that's that's the scary thing that's actually the pathological thing so when we sin we are guilty it is good to feel that guilt but the guilt actually goes deeper than we want to think it does it's not just getting caught that makes us guilty Right? We are guilty of even the things that we're never caught of. Even when no one is seen, it's obvious to God. There are no secrets with God. Secrecy with God is a myth, it does not exist. He sees every action, He sees every thought, every wicked motivation, every desire of your heart. He's not surprised by it, and we are guilty of it all. And maybe this isn't frightening. Until I might suggest that next Sunday for worship, rather than having liturgy and songs on the projector, what if we showed a movie of the past, we'll just say month of your life? Just the past month, right? We don't actually have to go even further than that, right? And just for an hour and a half, we watched all of your missteps, all of your failings, even all of the thoughts that never came out but were in there. What if that was shown Would you stay for that worship service? I don't think so. I think you'd be in your car driving home to pack to move. But on the cross, this is what God takes from us. He takes our sin and he takes our guilt. This is what John says, John the Baptist, in uh, John 1.29, when Jesus walks into the water to be baptized, his cousin John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's number one. He takes away our sin and guilt. Number two, what else does he take? He takes away God's anger. He takes God's anger from us. Again, if nobody wants to talk about sin and guilt, we definitely don't want to talk about God's anger. That is not a popular idea in our culture, right? We tend to think of God and Jesus as tender, tender, quiet, this big cosmic softy that never hurts anybody. And I will affirm that the Bible does tell us that Jesus is tender in his first coming and soft and kind and mild. That God is merciful and long-suffering and patient. These, are, these things are true. But the Bible is also very, very clear that God hates sin. He hates sin. Exodus 32 says, God burns with a white hot wrath with rage towards sin. And when he sees sin, he wants to kill it. He wants to snuff it out. He wants to strangle it. He wants to drown it. He despises it. Psalm 18 says, smoke pours out of his nostrils that there is devouring fire in his mouth. This is how God feels about sin. And that white hot rage that God feels about sin is aimed directly at you and at me until Jesus takes it from us on the cross. So if you are a hunter or uh, if you play video games with guns in them, right? Call of Duty, Fortnite, choose your poison, all right? You have uh, the crosshairs. You're zoomed in on that sniper rifle. The crosshairs are aimed on the target. The gun is cocked. The gun is loaded. The finger's on the trigger. And filled with rage at our glad rebellion, at our joyful disobedience, at our destroying of what God has made beautiful and lovely, God is about to act and... Christ steps in, and as he's hanging on the cross, he causes those crosshairs in that gun to move off of you, and he puts them on himself. He takes God's white-hot rage and anger toward us, and he puts, him, puts that on himself. He takes away God's anger. But number two here, it has a bonus. Jesus not only takes something from us, he gives something to us. Jesus takes away God's anger toward us, but in its place... He gives us God's delight. He puts on us God's joy, God's favor. See, the gospel, the good news, is not just one substitution, it's two. It's not just one imputation, it's two. So when the Bible says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, it's saying not only that God puts our sins on Jesus so that he dies the death we should have died, but also we're told that God puts Jesus' righteousness on us because he li- lived the life we should have lived. It's not that just God pardons you and says you get, a ge- get out of jail free card. But also that he pins the Congressional Medal of Honor on your chest and treats you as if you'd done everything that Jesus ever did. You're not just forgiven, you are credited with all of Jesus' medals with all of his accolades and accomplishments. And they're pinned to your chest, not his. All of God's anger for us is put on Jesus, and all of God's delight in Jesus is put on us as we become adopted sons and daughters. That's the second. He takes away our sin and guilt. He takes away our anger. And then thirdly, what does Jesus take from us on the cross? He removes, he takes away the distance between us and God. Because of our sin and because of God's anger toward it, there is a huge space between us and him, a huge obstacle that cannot be moved. Two years ago, our family uh, lived in the Middle East, and uh, it was a wonderful time. It was a really difficult time of being away from family and friends and loved ones, right? They're eight hours away, right? Eight time zones, and the only way uh, to be together is to hop on a plane and spend a lot of money and 10, 11 hours to get there. FaceTime doesn't cut it, right? Emails don't cut it. Texting pictures doesn't cut it. We were separated from those that we loved. And what Jesus does on the cross, because he's taken our sin and guilt, he's removed the separation. He lovingly pulls us in by the hand, and says, you don't have to be far away anymore. You don't have to live separate from from the Father. He pulls us in. Where we were far, we were as far away from God as the east is from the west. He actually changes that, and he says, no, I am going to take your sin away from you, and I'm going to put your sin as far away as the east is from the west, so that you can actually be near to God so that there will not be distance. And going back to our our second point, when he looks at you, when God looks at you, when he thinks of you, when he thinks of you, Karen, when he thinks of John, when he thinks of Matt, the look on his face is not one of disappointment. It is n- it's not one of frustration. It's not one of anger anymore. And because of this, it's a feeling of joy when he thinks about you, when he considers you, and he pulls you close, he pulls you near. Jesus and Jesus alone accomplishes this on the cross. And this is why we were born. This is why we exist, to know God, to be near to him, to enjoy him, to worship him. So those are the three things. He takes away our sin and guilt. He takes away uh, God's anger toward us, and he takes away the distance between us and God. And now we'll just, uh, as we start to close, we'll zoom out a little bit, and we'll consider why. Why does Jesus take these things from us? Why did he do it? Why did he let God forsake him? Why did he put himself in the position where all this could happen? Well, I'll tell you the right answer, and I'm gonna tell you that when I tell you this answer, it's gonna feel inadequate. The right answer, why did, why did Jesus do this? For the glory of God. That's the right answer. He did this for God's glory. But it feels inadequate because in heaven, Jesus was already perfectly glorifying the Father. He was just fine. He did not have to come to earth to glorify his Father. He was already doing it perfectly in heaven. So why did he do it? Why did he subject himself to this? Um, I'm going to read you uh, a retelling. It's a creative retelling of this story. It's just one page, but it's written by uh, two folks, Joni Erickson Tada and Steve Estes. It's called When God Weeps. It's a retelling of this whole narrative here, and it will help us get at uh, the answer to the why. And I'll tell you, it's graphic, I've actually edited out a few things because it's so graphic, Um, but I'm going to read this to you, and then we'll continue. So this is, uh, again, When God Weeps. The face that Moses had begged to see, that he was forbidden to see, was slapped bloody. The thorns that God had sent to curse the earth's rebellion now twisted around his own brow. On your back with you. One raises a mallet to sink the spike. But the soldier's heart must continue pumping as he readies the prisoner's wrist. Someone must sustain the soldier's life minute by minute, for no man has that power on his own. Who supplies breath to his lungs? Who gives energy to his cells? Who holds his molecules together? Only the sun can do this. Only through the sun do all things hold together. And so the victim wills that the soldier live on. He grants the warrior's continued existence, and the man swings. And as the man swings, the son recalls how he and the father first designed the medial nerve of the human forearm, the sensations it would be capable of. And the nerves perform exquisitely. The design proves flawless. Up you go. They lift the cross. And now God is on display in his underwear, and he can scarcely breathe. But these pains are a mere warm-up to his other and growing dread. He begins to feel a foreign sensation. Somewhere during the day, an unearthly foul odor began to waft, not around his nose, but around his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being, the living excrement from our souls. The apple of his father's eye turns brown with rot. His father. He must face his father like this. And now from heaven, the father rouses himself like a lion disturbed, shakes his mane, and roars against the shriveling remnant of a man hanging on a cross. Never has the son seen the father look at him this way. Never felt even the least of his hot breath but the roar shakes the unseen world and it darkens the visible sky. The sun does not recognize these eyes. And the father speaks. Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated and lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, and lied. You have cursed, robbed, Overspent, overeaten, fornicated. You have disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. Oh, the duties that you have shirked. The children you have abandoned. Who has ever so ignored the poor, so played the coward, and so belittled my name? Have you ever held your razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk you are. You who peddle killer drugs, who travel in cliques and mock your parents, who gave you this boldness to rig elections and foment revolutions and torture animals and worship demons. Does this list never end? Splitting families, acting smugly, playing the pimp, buying politicians, practicing extortion, filming pornography and accepting bribes. You have burned down buildings. You have perfected terrorist tactics. You founded false religions. You traded in slaves, relishing each morsel and bragging about it. I hate. I loathe these things in you. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? But of course, the son is innocent. He is blamelessness itself, and the father knows this, But the divine pair have an agreement, and the unthinkable must now take place. Jesus will personally be treated as responsible for every sin ever committed. And the Father watches as his heart's treasure, the mere image of himself, sinks down drowning into raw liquid sin. Jehovah's stored rage against humankind from every century explodes in a single direction. Father... Father, why have you forsaken me? But heaven stops his ears. The Son stares up at the one who cannot, who will not reach down or reply. The Trinity had planned it, the Son endured it, the Spirit enabled him. The Father rejected the Son whom he loved. Jesus, the God-man from Nazareth, perished. The Father accepted his sacrifice for sin and was satisfied the rescue was accomplished. So this question of why, why did Jesus do it? Why did he let God forsake him? He was a willing participant. John records in John 10, 18, Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I'm doing this. So consider this. What did Jesus get by coming to earth that he did not have before? He was already perfectly glorifying God in heaven. What did he get by coming to earth that he did not have before? Us. Why did he let this happen? Why did he do it? For you. For me. Say it. Why? Say it. For me, for me, and what I've just described is beautiful, but it is not true for everyone. You have to believe. You have to be willing to repent, to admit it was a punishment and execution that the crosshairs raimed on you. To, to repent, that's to turn your back and walk away from sin. And yes, we will stumble. We will fail. We all had our hands raised earlier. Okay, We're not perfect people. There's no perfect people in here. But if there is no belief and no repentance, then what I've just described is not true for you. We have only the biblical reality of being stuck in our sin and guilt, of being in the middle of God's just anger and the reality that we are far from God. But for those who do believe, who do repent, for those who hate their sin and seek not to walk in it any longer, this is this is the best news. <laughs> this is amazing news. So over the next two weeks, as we approach Resurre- Resurrection Sunday, let's think about these things. Let's sit in this. Let's be moved by this, by his great love for us. And, and if you're wondering, if you're sitting here and you're wondering, I mean, how can we know that this is true? How do we know this isn't a myth or a legend or another fairy tale? We know because Jesus didn't stay dead. We'll talk about that in two weeks. So come back then. But let me pray as, uh, as we consider these things.